1: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ed Kles with my friend and co-host Ron Baker, and on today's show, folks, we are honored to have Marion Tupi. Ron, how are you doing?
2: I'm great, Ed. It's not every day you get to talk to the editor of Human Progress. Uh, no
1: kidding. Yeah. Uh, Mar- I'll just do a quick bio for Marion. His as Ron mentioned, editor of humanprogress.org, great website. Really think yes. you would check that out. Uh, senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity, co-author of the Simon Project, which I know we're gonna talk a lot about later on. He specializes in globalization, global well-being, and politics, economics of Europe and South Southern Africa. His articles have been published in the Financial Times. The Washington Post, The Los Angeles Times, The Wall Street Journal, just to name a few. And I think he's appeared run on just about every significant cable news channel in the world is pretty much the way I was reading his biography. He is the co-author of the upcoming book, 10 Global Trends That Every Smart Person Needs to Know, and many others you will find interesting. And we'll talk a little bit about that. Marion Tupi, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise.
3: Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be with you.
1: Well, the first thing I, I wanted to talk to you about is I've heard you interviewed a number of times as well as on, you know, Cato events, and but I've never heard you talk about your story. You obviously grew up in South Africa and have made your way here to the States, so give us the three or four minute biography of and, and, and journey of Marion Tupi.
3: I grew up in South Africa, but I wasn't born there. I was born in what used to be communist Czechoslovakia um, in the late 70s, and uh, Uh, When the wall came down, when communism collapsed, my parents decided to emigrate. It wasn't because we missed communism, uh, but because uh, it was really the first time that you could leave the Eastern Bloc, or what used to be the Eastern Bloc, um, and take your children with you. In the old days, um, occasionally people would be permitted to go and visit other countries, but but the communists would, would keep the children behind as hostages. So anyway... When communism fell, uh, my parents wanted to move somewhere where standard of living was higher. Um, They're medical doctors. And at that time, as in fact now, uh, there was a great deal of demand for medical doctors in South Africa. Uh, So they moved there. I think they would have preferred to come to the States or to Canada. But of course, the the market for doctors is uh, highly protected uh, on this side of the Atlantic. Uh, So uh, South Africa was really the only option, but I'm glad we did that. Um, it was an interesting time to be in South Africa, obviously the transition to, from one uh, kind of government to another, um, but you know, I got a very nice uh, high school education there, uh, went to college, uh, made a lot of friends, so was very happy. But I think it was in South Africa that I first started to um, be concerned with, or rather trying to understand um, why some countries were rich, why some countries are poor. Uh, obviously, whatever insights I have, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants who have been looking into this question for the last 200, 250 years. Um, but, but once you go from Eastern Europe under communism to Africa under completely different uh, cultural setting and policy uh, institutions, and then I moved to Britain and then later to the United States, you cannot but uh, wonder uh, why... Uh, Why is the economy functioning in some parts of the world, but not in others? Uh, Why in some parts of the world the private property is protected and there's rule of law? And if something gets stolen, uh, the police investigates as opposed to in other parts of the world where nothing like that happens. Why are some places free and some not? So ever since then, I was wondering about those sorts of questions. And that's really what brought me to Cato and where I've been since 2002.
1: Outstanding. Well, thanks for that. I didn't realize that your parents were both medical doctors. So that gives you a kind of another insight on the whole COVID-19 situation, which I just quickly, uh, I, I trust you and yours have fared well with with, with regard to that.
3: Yes, uh, yes, uh, no problems. And in fact, uh, I don't know anyone who, who who has had it, or at least who knows they've had it. I very much suspect that a lot of people are walking around who have had it, and uh, who, don't sh- who never showed any symptoms and don't show uh, the, the scars of having it somewhere in their body. So it's a, it's a very peculiar virus. I'm sure that uh, there's a lot that will be uh, researched about this virus, but it's certainly a, a, a very peculiar one.
1: Yeah, I think we have enough research topics now for the next 20 years just due to COVID-19 with not only medical, but also the the economic ones as well. So there's going to be plenty of doctoral dissertations that spurn from the data that we're generating today. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I wanted to ask you about an article that appeared in National Review entitled COVID-19 Should Make Us Grateful for Technology. And would it be correct to say that without the extraordinarily world that largely capitalism has provided us, th- there would be no such thing as lockdown since, quite frankly, we couldn't afford it?
3: Well, we probably would have had lockdowns in the same way that, um, uh, that, for example, uh, Florence had in the mid-1340s. Uh, um, but it would be a different type of lockdown. Um you know, here in this country right now, the government is printing a lot of money to keep people employed, um, to keep people uh, housed so that they don't have to leave their apartments. Uh, you know, we are paying for all sorts of things out of the money which we print or we borrow. Uh, but, but back in the day, um, you know, when, when pandemics happened before, obviously there was no social welfare net. Uh, the governments couldn't borrow or couldn't print as much money as they do now. And as a consequence, uh, life was much harder. Now, that's a separate question from asking whether the lockdown was the right thing to do and uh, whether we should have done the things that we had done. Uh, but uh, it, it certainly made lives of many people easier than they would have been uh, in, in previous times of uh, pandemics. So, But that's just the fiscal side of things. Obviously, there are many other aspects to modernity and how we are dealing with COVID. Um, uh, one of the most important things, obviously, is uh, the speed with which we are able to identify uh, the problem that we are facing. Uh, people really need to understand this because this is the most crucial thing to understand if you think that life is tough and that uh, uh, you know, we are mishandling the situation. For thousands of years, for hundreds of thousands of years, uh, people were dying like flies from things that they never understood what they were. Um, you know, people haven't identified uh, smallpox until... Well, people knew that they were dying of something, but they didn't know what it was. They couldn't identify smallpox or polio or uh, um, tuberculosis and so on and so forth. They just died. Um, now, um, and, and, and of course, that Im- imbued humanity with a tremendous sense of fatalism. What I mean by that was that... Um, For the longest time, there was no conception of human progress. People didn't expect for things to get better. Uh, People simply assumed that they were at the mercy of some type of impersonal forces, the wheel of fortune. Um, One day you were alive and well, next day you were dead and there was absolutely nothing that you could do about it. And about 250 years ago, during the Enlightenment, things started improving and scholars for the first time started thinking about progress that things could go on getting better. Now, obviously, none of us are arguing that progress um, doesn't go through ups and downs. I'm not arguing for a second that there aren't setbacks. In fact, we are living through one. However, the fact that we expect the scientific community to come up with solutions to our problems, the fact that we expect to have a vaccine or a drug that will take care of this problem within 12 months of the outbreak of the pandemic—that is historically unprecedented. Uh, that has never happened before, um, and um, and that that of course is in itself a sign of progress. The fact that we no longer, you know, throw virgins into burning volcanoes or sacrifice children in order to appease the gods, but in fact. People throughout the world, from sophisticated societies to primitive societies, look to scientists to save us.
1: Yes, and as you point in the article, there are really four main things in that article, and we might be able to touch on on a couple of them. Uh, first, you talk about healthcare, and what you mentioned—you know, it took what 3,296 years to to develop a treatment for smallpox, polio over 3,000 years, cholera over 2,000 years, measles 1,500 years, rubella 350 years. But then you get down to where we are today, AIDS, 15 years, Ebola from, I guess, the time of the really bad outbreak in 2013, not the discovery of the disease, but from only five years till the vaccine. It really is just amazing. <laughs> yeah,
3: not only, uh, so, so the speed with which we are able to uh, tackle these problems or attempt to tackle these problems is obviously speeding up dramatically. Um, Ebola has been around in Africa since the 70s. But as you say, uh, because it really wasn't a, a threat to the West, um, our uh, scientists didn't start working on it until the outbreak in 2014, 2015. And since then, it really took only four or five years before we had a vaccine against Ebola. Now, HIV AIDS, uh, HIV is a difficult one. Um, uh, you know, we still don't have a vaccine. However, we do have drugs which people take to moderate the virus and also to prevent uh, catching the virus. Uh, so um, the the time that expired from the moment we realized we had a serious problem with HIV, which was 1980, to the time when the first antiretroviral drugs came on, uh, uh, on the market uh, really was 15 years. By mid-1990s, uh, um, you know, people could start taking drugs which still had very bad side effects but kept people alive. Um, so, Truly. It, the, the, yeah, the speed, is, the speed is increasing, and I suspect that it will increase even more uh, because, of course, we are now able to break down the genetic code of a virus or a bacterium uh, at a much faster, faster speed than we used to before with things like CRISPR. Uh, that wasn't a problem with uh, with regard to COVID. It wasn't really finding out uh, what this virus consists of. The problem was that our um, the speed of developing vaccines uh, really was stuck uh, a few decades behind. We really haven't made much progress in speeding up the creation of vaccines, and then. Uh, uh, trying them out, making making sure that they they are safe. So that was the bottleneck, really. The bottleneck wasn't finding out what what the virus was. The bottleneck was was speeding up the process of vaccines. But of course, uh, you know, we got burned here. Uh, but that also means that looking into the future, uh, we will know where the bottlenecks are and we'll be able to we'll be able to address it hopefully.
1: Yeah, and that's one thing. Ron and I are big fans of Russ Roberts's podcast, and he's alluded to a couple times on his his show that that the what we're going to see as a result of all of the things that that's happened because of COVID-19 are, it's really glorious. I mean, he's predicting that it's going to be amazing the technologies that have grow out of this, even if it's not directly related to COVID.
3: Yes. Um, often look, progress cannot happen without problems first springing up and humanity then needing to put its, uh, uh, put its mind behind uh, behind behind solutions so um, you know the first has to be a problem uh, for it to be solved now 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 the problem has arisen and and we are going to hopefully
1: solve it outstanding well this is flying by as it usually does we're up against our first break want to remind our listeners that you can contact ron or me by sending an email to ask tsoe at verisage.com of course the website is the soul of enterprise where you can see show notes and previews to upcoming shows but right now a word from our sponsor Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program, This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com.
4: Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll-free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network.
0: we're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. We're here with Marion Tupi, the editor of Human Progress and a senior fellow at the Center for Global Liberty and Prosperity And Marion, I've been reading some of your blog posts at the uh, humanprogress.org site, which are fantastic. And one that hit me was, are we really poorer than our parents from November of 2018, where you point out that prosperity can be measured by personal income and wealth, but it can also be measured by uh, falling prices. And before we get into your time price and the Simon Index, I wanted to ask you just kind of a broader question i remember reading from nicholas eberstadt i know he's at a, another think tank uh but great he, man a, great man very great very man yeah player. a really provocative thinker he said if you measure po- the poverty rate in terms of consumption rather than income mm-hmm. it would be like two to four percent
3: yes he was referencing a, a new study from a university which the, the name of which escapes me But essentially, here's the deal. Uh, We are talking now not about absolute poverty, which is what people like me uh, tend to focus on. We are talking about relative poverty in the United States. As you know, um, since the mid-1960s, America has had its war on poverty. Um, At the time, uh, the relative poverty rate, uh, which is poor people have to earn a certain fraction, certain share of the general American income uh, to qualify as, as as poor, but as the income goes up, uh, the level at which relative poverty in America kicks in obviously goes up with it. Right? You, you're with me, okay? okay. So anyhow, uh, so since uh, mid 1960s, so when the uh, relative poverty rate in America was about 16%, um, it fell to about 12. But since uh, the uh, since the mid 1960s, it's been uh, it's been hovering between 8 and 12% relative poverty rate, uh, depending on whether we are in the middle of an economic boom or a recession. Now, um, that is based on income. However, these particular academics um, in a study whose name I forget, uh, looked at uh, consumption and what they found is that on that relative poverty measure, uh, if, you, if, you look at, if you look at spending, uh, the poverty rate is actually down to two or three percent, because people spend a lot of, uh, people earn a lot of money, which they don't declare, obviously. Uh, then there are a lot of people who are living off their savings. There are a lot of people who are between jobs, which means that they don't declare any income. But in fact, they still uh, consume and, and, and spend a lot of money, which they have saved for a rainy day. So based on consumption, uh, poverty rate in America is much lower than the 8 to 12% which we are used to from the news.
2: Right. And you wrote another article, and this was in the Foundation for Economic Education, No American, Americans uh, Are Not Worse Off Today Than Their Parents. And it repeated, you quoted somebody who tweeted the conventional wisdom that wages have stagnated since 1977, $34,000. This is pure nonsense. And then you mentioned your time price. Um, uh, index or, or your time price calculation. Can you kind of explain that and how that kind of weaves into the standard of living?
3: So let's start with the standard of living. Um, the When people talk about stagnating wages, what they are usually talking about is a small sliver of the American population. Uh, they are usually tracked by uh, the Federal Reserve at St. Louis as the non-supervisory blue-collar workers. Uh, But that's only a small sliver of of the population. Um, And it is true that their hourly wages uh, have been stagnant since the mid-1970s, adjusted for inflation. However, that particular measure doesn't take into account non-wage compensation, which for a variety of quirks in the American tax code and in the American uh, legislature, uh, uh, legal uh, laws and regulations. So, for a variety of tax reasons and, and rules and regulations, companies um, like to give people non-wage benefits, mostly to avoid taxes. And as a result of that, uh, the uh, that particular wage uh, underestimates income growth by about 40%. So, on top of whatever Americans in that in that small sliver of non-supervisory blue-collar workers are earning. Another 40% should be added in terms of health, in terms of a variety of transport benefits, child benefits, uh, dental, vision, base um, uh, uh, off, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, so um, that's, that's just the wage side of things. Now, the other side of things is, of course, what is happening to prices of things that people need and people buy. Um, and uh, let me just give you one example uh, the price of television has fallen by anywhere close to 98% uh, the uh, the kind of and, and we are not talking about uh, about uh, the tremendous um, improvements in quality so if you look at a television set from the 1970s um and look at its price uh, it has fallen by about 98% for the same size of television however it doesn't account for um, energy saving, for the aesthetic improvement in television sets. It doesn't account for things like better color, um, uh, high definition, uh, flat screen. Sorry, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't take so much part of your apartment and so forth. So. Even if you don't look at uh, these at these massive improvements, the, the price has still fallen by 98%. Similar things could be said about fridges, about cars, about uh, microwaves, about bicycles, about clothing. Clothing is incredibly cheap by historical standards. And as a result of which, American spending on basics, which is how the government sort of looks at what is your share of your income that goes to things like uh, food, um, uh, uh, food and, and and clothing has now fallen to about 8%, which is historically the lowest it's, it's ever been. And that makes sense because food and, and clothing uh, and and uh, um, electronics and home appliances are much, much lower than what they are. Um, now, we can talk later about uh, things that didn't get cheap, things that got more expensive. And we are talking about childcare, education, and healthcare. But let's put those aside. Maybe we'll return to them. The point about Simon, uh, the point, the point about... Time price is as follows. Standard of living can improve due to two things, not one, but two. It's not just that incomes can increase, but it's also that prices can decrease. And time price is this ingenious way in which you can account for both when you are when you are looking at a price of something. So time price really means what is the amount of time that you have to spend in order to earn enough money to buy something. And because wages go up and price goes down, the time price accounts for both of them. Does that make sense?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I love, I think you give the example of a blue collar person throwing a Thanksgiving dinner and the price of that has just dropped dramatically.
3: Yeah, it's been dropping. I I don't have the figures on me, but it's been dropping every year for the last, uh, what, almost uh, 40 years since the American Agricultural Bureau has started collecting uh, the information. Uh, And that's because both food is getting cheaper and also uh, incomes of the American workers go up. And so the amount of time that you have to spend um, earning enough money for that Thanksgiving dinner has been declining from whatever it was, an hour to 55 minutes to 45 minutes to 38 minutes, and that sort of thing. And that's really what you want, because here's the thing. the most precious commodity for each of us is our time. Uh, you get to live only once, unless you believe in uh, reincarnation and so forth, but I have no evidence for that, so I assume that we live only once. And so long as we live only once, every second matters. Uh, the most finite commodity or resource in our life is, is obviously time. And so the less time you have to spend um, earning enough money to, to buy something, you can spend it doing other things. You can travel the world, you can spend it with your family, uh, you can read books and so on and so forth. Um, so time price, I think, should be the price that 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 we look at everything, um, not real price. Uh, I mean, real price has its uses. You know, uh, you 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 look at the price of gas um, adjusted for inflation between 1979, uh, you know, when we had our last crisis, and then and then today, and you can see whether it's gone up or down. But once you account for an increase in American incomes, then obviously oil is very cheap.
2: Right, right. Now, I, in the article, you you compared things from the Sears catalog, I think in nineteen seventy nine, to Walmart two thousand nineteen, and with the time price declined by seventy two percent. That's massive. Yeah,
3: on average. Yeah, on average. For, on the, average. For, the, for the commodities for the commodities that we looked at, and uh, uh, yeah, I mean electronics especially had been really dramatically declining. But I really hope that people will will take this time price into 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 their hearts and into their minds and start thinking about about it in those terms, because, you know, there is a lot of depression around in America and a lot of nonsense that is being said. And, and people genuinely think that, uh, that things are getting worse. And, um, you know, very often, actually, people lie by doing things like they don't adjust for inflation. Um, so, so right. um, you know, so turning into real prices is, is good, but turning into time prices is better.
2: And just one clarification, uh, Marian, because we, we teach pricing and we talk about the labor theory of value versus the subjective theory of value. Your time prices are not based on the labor theory of value. You're using time as the denominator, sort of. It's, it's more like a constraint. Like you said, it's the biggest constraint in our life. There's only so much of it. It's not replaceable. It it has nothing to do with value, right?
3: No, it doesn't. Um, I mean, if you wanted to talk about value, when we looked at uh, the price of fifty commodities from 1980 to 2018, these are basically these are commodities that go into everything, you know, from copper to iron to gold, even gold. Uh, I'll I'll get to my point in a moment. Silver, oil, and so on. We looked at fifty of those, and they all declined in price, including gold. The only thing that didn't go in price down in price is is human labor. Now, why is that happening? Because of productivity gains okay? So um, our species as a whole is much more productive than the Neanderthals. The Neanderthals had exactly the same natural resources that we do, but they were dirt poor. Um, but we are very rich compared to the Neanderthals. Why? Because, uh, because we are much more productive as the species. But then, of course, in the life of an individual human being, we become more productive over our lifetimes. You know, when we start uh, our working lives as uh uh, newspaper delivery boys or working at Starbucks, you know, we, we earn very little. But then as we progress and by the time we reach our 50s and our 60s, and, and 60s uh, we earn much more because we become productive over our lifetimes. So what's happened in that time? Well, we've acquired knowledge and skills so that a company wants to retain us um, uh, for, for longer so that we can apply that knowledge and those skills in order to generate more value for that company. So that's productivity. Um, and that is why human labor is more expensive um, year to year, and uh, that is why um, it, it, it ought to feature in the way that we look at prices. And I, I hope I answered your question.
2: I know you did. I, you know, the first time I was exposed to the time price, I think it was in Matt Ridley's book, or where he talked about Nordhaus's study about how much electricity used to cost and what what we spend on it now in terms of labor and. It's just a dramatic example. And it's like, yeah, once your, once your head gets around that idea, it, it yeah. totally alters your worldview.
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I would only add that, uh, uh, of course, smart people have always taken time into account. When Nordhaus, in his very famous 1992 paper, was it 94, 94 paper no. on the price of lighting, he uh, what he showed was that whereas in the 1800s, we used to spend five hours of labor in order to produce one hour of light, in order to buy one hour of light, right? Five hours of labor in order to buy one hour of light. Um, By 1992, uh, that has fallen to by 99.9% to something like 12 seconds or something like that. So he's been onto this. Adam Smith uh, talked about it. But, uh, uh, but we've applied it to natural resources and we are trying to promote it uh, as the right way to measure standard of living uh, as, opposed to, uh, as opposed to just real prices because I, th- I think it's very important.
2: Right. No, it's brilliant, actually. And, and unfortunately, Marion, we're up against our next break and I know Ed wants to talk to you about your forthcoming book. Uh, I think at the end of this month, The 10 Global Trends That Every Smart Person Needs To Know. In the meantime, folks, if you want to get a hold of Ed or me, Send us an email to asktsoe at barrisage.com. We'll post full show notes at thesoulofenterprise.com with our conversation with Marion and links where you can find his work and some of his uh, blog posts and other writings. And now we want to hear from our sponsors.
3: The future of online TV
1: is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Folks, we are talking with Marion Tupi, author of the upcoming book, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know, and many others you will find interesting. I want to remind you that you can also go out to our Patreon site, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can listen to this show commercial free and also hear the conversations that we have during the show breaks. But Marion, before we get to your book, uh, and perhaps as a setup even, I want to just finish off the tail end of the conversation about the National Review article uh, to this, this notion that you bring up called socialty and what y- y- it's defined as the tendency to associate in or form social groups and um, I think that this is one of the big things that has been completely missed and I don't see any much of it talked about in in society today that um, the, uh, it, we're really, suffering a a dearth of social capital, of building our our social capital because of what's happening with COVID. And I don't think we'll ever be able to measure what what we've lost because of that.
3: So, social is a concept that was, as far as I know, uh, developed by a very smart uh, American psychologist uh, who is right now teaching from Australia called William von Hippel. And I cannot recommend his book uh, highly enough. It's called The Social Lead. And basically, the leading theory behind why are humans thinking and behaving the way they are, in fact, why are there human beings in terms of homo sapiens there in the first place, is called this concept of socialty. So what does it mean, really? Is that, um, you know, as we evolved uh, over the last six or seven million years ago, uh, we have uh, really been able to flourish uh, within, within groups. As individuals, uh, we were able to, uh, you know, occupy the, the, the tops of, of trees in the, in the African savanna and so forth. But when those dried out and we had to, uh, we had to then walk on all fours um, uh, long distances, uh, we had to develop an ability to walk on two uh, so that we could carry spears and throw stones, etc., etc. And that was uh, a, one way of protecting ourselves. But then we started really... Uh, getting together with other uh, Australopithecines and we realized that uh, whilst uh, one of our ancestors couldn't protect himself or herself against an attack by a tiger or, or hyena, um, when you were together, uh, let's say five or ten people or even larger group, and you could start throwing uh, stones or spears at uh, wild animals, suddenly our chances of survival have massively improved. So the people who remained in a group, um, uh, they passed their genes on to to succeeding generations, whereas people who were uh, loners and who didn't rely on other people for help, um, they got weeded out of the gene pool. Now, here's the important thing. Uh, The the geographical environment or the natural environment is obviously um, a, a, a tremendous impulse for uh, the development of uh, brain uh, brain capacities, but an even more important uh, environment is the social environment. Because once you have to start, once you have to start inter- interacting with other human beings, especially in large groups of people, you have to start developing an appreciation of what other people are thinking, and this is the theory of mind, which people have but other animals don't. So, for example, a monkey doesn't really know what the other monkey is uh, thinking. Uh, The One monkey cannot get into the brain of the other monkey and figure out whether that monkey is angry or whether uh, they were joking or being sarcastic or whether they were serious and so forth. Human beings are able, through the theory of mind, to put themselves into the mind of other people. So, for example, if you give monkey a, a dirty plate, he will mimic your... Um, your attempt to clean that plate in 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 a uh, in the kitchen, but the monkey doesn't understand that the ultimate reason why you are cleaning that dish is not just to uh, make that motion with your hands. The, the, your what you are doing, you are trying to get that plate clean. A monkey will keep on cleaning that um, uh, that uh, that plate forever. But it doesn't understand that the ultimate goal is to make it clean, and so after cleaning it for me half an hour, uh, that monkey will give it back to you, and it's as dirty as before. That's because the monkey doesn't understand what the ultimate purpose that you are striving for um, uh, is. So this environment, this social environment, um, really was the fundamental difference in uh, in uh, uh, made the fundamental difference that turned us into Homo sapiens. The ability to understand other human beings. Um, and to get into their skin, into their mind, so to speak, and that's called the theory of mind. And um, so, so when when von Hippel and I when we talk about when we talk about sociality, it, it's not just as Aristotle said that man is a is a social animal. We we humans would not be possible without socialty because socialty is what turned us into homo sapiens in the first place so this interaction and ability to be with other people is absolutely fundamental to who we are and therefore long instances of separation and so forth are so very difficult for us
1: yeah and a big challenge for us so i i do want to get a little bit to, to the new book coming up at the end of, of august i believe and again the title is 10 global trends every smart person should know and many others you'll find interesting and let's let's start with with uh, population uh, the myth that, uh, the you know, we have a population problem. I think it was 1798, the essay on principle of population known as the Malthusian trap, right, increases in nation's food production, but then w- it was going to be a, a problem because uh, uh, the populace will not be able to support that. He was kind of right at the time, wasn't he? <laughs> but he's just uh- really since been proven wrong. <laughs>
3: So we are talking about my first book, but in fact, in my second book, uh, um, which I'm writing about Malthus, uh, we are, uh, uh, we've done the calculations, and he was wrong even at his own time. So Malthus was right historically. Um, uh, whenever population increased, uh, they ran out of food, then the population collapsed, and so on and so forth, which is the same dynamic you see amongst animals everywhere in the world. However, in the 18th century, which is when Malthus was alive, already started, things started to change. And in fact, the population of England has massively increased during the time uh, that Malthus was alive. And uh, prices, time prices of wheat have declined. So in fact, and and as you know, back then uh, people mostly ate bread. So, So in fact, people were better fed at the end of the 18th century than at the beginning. Even though Malthus was alive, he couldn't see it. It's a very interesting parallel to what was happening to Marx and to Engels. Uh, during their time, when they were talking about how capitalism was going to squeeze the wages of uh, laborers um, until ultimately uh, th- there would be no- nothing left, in their times, in their own lifetimes, the wages of laborers were already beginning to increase. So very often, these thinkers who think that they have discovered a, a, an answer, uh, th- th- they are in fact living during a time when, when things are already changing in the direction that is opposed to whatever they were thinking. Um, Paul Ehrlich is another perfect example of somebody who came up with a population bomb in 1968 because, uh, because population was increasing. But even during his own time, uh, population was already beginning to fall. Uh, sorry, not population, but uh, uh, replacement rates, uh, population replacement. The total uh, fertility rate was beginning to decline. So even, even, even he didn't see it.
1: So let's talk a little bit about, isn't, is population growth one of the myths in the new book? Is that one of the things you guys do talk about there?
3: Um, certainly, uh, the, 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 the myth would be the idea that we are somehow um, um, exploding in population in an uncontrolled fashion, and ultimately, uh, let's put the resources aside. Uh, you know, people who worry that there will be 12 or 13 billion people and that sort of thing, that's not going to happen because uh, total fertility rate around the world is declining. In fact, I think that the only uh, large region where uh, total fertility rate is uh, still about 2.5 is sub-Saharan Africa. Everywhere else it's below 2.5. Once you get to 2.1, that's 2.1 babies per woman, obviously, um, you are looking at a replacement level. uh, And once you get below that, uh, then obviously populations begin to shrink. Throughout Western Europe, uh, most countries, or many countries, are below a replacement level. Czech Republic um, is something like one point, 1.3. So, in a few generations, you are talking at a complete population collapse, if you will. Um, so, the latest research uh, there was a Lancet article earlier this month about population growth. It looks like population will peak uh, somewhere around, um, uh, somewhere below 10 billion midway through this century, and then it will. Uh, then it will fall. So that by the end of this century, we are going to have anywhere between 6.7 and 8.7 billion people. So let's just put it into context. Right now, there are 7.8 billion people or 7.7 billion people in the world. At the end of this century, depending on the the birth rates, we will either have 1 billion fewer people, 6.7 billion, or we are going to have one more billion people, but we can we can perfectly well feed all those people. Um, the agricultural potential of the planet is nowhere close to being tapped. So we have plenty of uh, we, we have plenty of space, and uh, population is not a is not a problem now, and won't be a problem in mid-century, and certainly won't be a problem toward the end of century when technological innovation will be such that uh, we'll be able to really feed, clothes, and house all of these people as a, uh, in a much easier way than we can now.
1: Outstanding. Well, I already have the book on order. I'm looking forward to reading it and we hope to to maybe uh, maybe have uh, uh, Ronald Bailey on uh, after it's, it's published as well. But right now we're up against our last break. I want to remind you that you can contact Ron or me using the email asktsoe at com. Also, com slash tsoe and it's pretty self explanatory. It gives you a chance to rate this podcast. We love to hear reviews. We read every single one of them on the air. But right now, a word from our sponsor and my employer, Sage.
0: Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. are tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask TSOE. now back to the soul of enterprise
2: welcome back everybody we're here with Marion Tupi, the editor of humanprogress.org and Marion, i know you specialize in globalization and global well-being that's one of the one of the areas, and I just wanted to ask you, what did you think of Brexit? Uh,
3: I was in favor of Brexit. Uh, A lot of my friends were not, uh, and that has led to a lot of tension, including personal tension, which was unfortunate. It became a sort of like an identity issue uh, of of some kind. Um, But you know, a lot of Libertarians uh, were in my camp, there were some who were against. The most fundamental reason I think I was in favor of Brexit is because of my belief in inter-jurisdictional competition. Uh, I believe that uh, we should have as many uh, jurisdictions uh, competing against one another in terms of what set of uh, rights and responsibilities they provide to the citizenry, what sort of taxes they impose, what sort of uh, laws and regulations uh, they have. Um, And uh, what worried me was that the European Union was growing so strong and so... uh, and interfered so heavily in, uh, uh, the, uh, in the policies of individual member states uh, that uh, that competition between the European states was beginning to, beginning to suffer. Uh, it's one thing to tear down barriers to trade and to investment to people and so forth, which was the original idea behind the European Union uh, and which I fully support. And it's another thing when you start regulating everything uh, because then you are squashing uh, in- Initiative, you are squashing innovation and so forth. I would much rather for Brussels and for that matter, Washington to be much less powerful and let individual states chart their own way and compete with one another. Um, in the same way that we see, for example, right now in the United States after the tax, uh, after the tax uh, reform uh, for the rich, um, New York uh, was thinking of increasing taxes, but because so many rich are now uh, going to, to live in Florida. They have to think twice about how much they're going to tax their population. So that's, in my view, the, uh, uh, the good kind of competition. I want to see more of that. And what worried me about about uh, about the EU was that it was beginning to resemble Washington too much and interfering too much.
2: I couldn't agree more. Ed and I are big believers. We called it Brexit 2.0 at the time because we already did 1.0 back in the 1770s <laughs> or something. But <laughs> That's um, funny <laughs> you also wrote
4: uh,
3: can, can I just Ferguson. make one anecdote there's a wonderful uh, book by uh, Neil Ferguson uh, the Scottish uh, historian who's now at Stanford called Empire and it gives basically the history of the of, of, of british empire um, the the taxes imposed by uh, the, by, the, by the government by the British government on American colonists was one twenty six of the taxes that were imposed by the Brits on the British public, whereas the average taxation in the United Kingdom, in, in England, was 26, uh, 26 shillings. In the United States, it was one shilling. So, yeah. We, yeah,
2: taxation with representation, we have learned, is much more expensive than taxation yes, with
3: yes. representation. <laughs> exactly. Sorry, I cut you off, but I saw that. That's a very
2: good no, idea. No, uh, yeah. you, you wrote something else. You know, we're, Ed and I have been watching very, very closely with a saddened heart. Everything going on in Hong Kong, we're we're big fans of Jimmy Lai, who I'm sure yes, you probably yes, know, yes. Uh, incredible entrepreneur. Um, what can we do about this situation, if anything, Marian? It's, it's concerning.
3: The only way that we can deal with it now is to is to make uh, uh, is to make the costs of uh, further Chinese incursions uh, into Hong Kong and Chinese behavior. Uh, uh heavier or greater than the benefits and even then I'm not sure that um, anything good will come out of it the reality is that China is a nuclear power we are not going to save the people of Hong Kong or rather we are not going to save the independence uh, of Hong Kong uh, and the freedom of Hong Kong uh, through some sort of military intervention and I very much doubt that even sanctions will do so even though I said, that we could increase the cost for the Chinese government. I don't think that even sanctions would necessarily help because the Chinese are hell-bent on on unifying the country from their perspective by subsuming Macau, Hong Kong, Taiwan, and so forth. However, we can save the Hong Kong people People. by allowing them to come to Western democracies. Now, I realize that this is not a moment to talk about uh, higher immigration, uh, but I do want to make a, uh, but I, I hope, that no matter who listens to this podcast and where they stand on stand on immigration, I hope they make a difference between uh, between uh, uh, you know people who may not necessarily have a lot of skills, um, maybe coming from uh, fundamentally different cultures. There are there are certainly concerns there, um, you know, that we don't need to get into. But that those are not the concerns that are applicable with regard to the people of Hong Kong. These are Westernized, liberalized people who are highly intelligent, who are highly capitalized, who are highly driven, uh, and and we would do well to bring them to the United States and allow them to, to turn some of our uh, horrible inner cities that have been destroyed by, by generations of corrupt politicians into the new Hong Kong.
2: Yeah, That's what we can do. Yeah, I was heartworn was to see uh, Boris Johnson say he's going to let you know let them come in. I think Australia's prime minister said that. I hope we do that here in the states. Uh, you also pointed out something else in your Hong Kong article, and I have to ask you about this. You got to meet Sir John Copperthwaite.
3: I sure did. I sure did. Yeah. I, Tell um, us
2: about that. That wow.
3: <laughs> well, thank you. I I, I said this to uh, I. Uh, said this story before, but I'm happy to say it again because because um, any any chance I get to talk about Sir John is uh, is uh, is very special time for me. So I started being interested in Hong Kong in about 1999 2000 again as as part of my studies into what makes countries rich what makes countries poor. And I was a doctoral student at St Andrews University in Scotland, and uh, I I started doing a bit of research on Hong Kong. And I was having a discussion with a friend of mine about you know some of the things that made Hong Kong rich. And he says, well, do you know that Sir John Copperwhite lives in St. Andrews, which is a small town in Scotland where I was at university? I said, what are you talking about? That's crazy. And so I looked up his address in the phone book, and sure enough, he lived about four houses down from my dorm, um, which you know, was just wow. absolutely unbelievable. So I sent him a letter. Uh, he responded. He invited me for tea and uh, cucumber sandwiches, uh, as one does. And uh, we had a very pleasant conversation, and then uh, I saw him a bunch of times after that. Last time I saw him uh, was uh, when, when friends of mine and I launched a Libertarian uh, magazine at, at St. Andrews, probably in 2001 or 2002, um, and then I left the university. But, uh, but yes, I got to know him, I got to talk to him about uh, Hong Kong and what he did in Hong Kong. And um, um, you know, there was a lot of things that he said, but one thing that sticks in my mind, that, two things, I'll give you two anecdotes. One of the things he said was that he prevented collection of statistics in Hong Kong. In other words, when people wanted to collect statistics, he, he said, no, there won't be collection of statistics in, in Hong Kong whilst I'm the financial secretary. Because the moment that politicians have a lot of statistics they can start seeing discrepancies you know maybe somebody has more here, somebody has less there and maybe one part of the economy is growing quote unquote too hot and the other one is growing too cold. And so before you know it politicians see in these uh, in these patterns an opportunity to get involved to, to de- basically to undermine everything and to destroy everything so so I think I think uh, I, I think that was that was certainly something that he was very keen on. the other thing he said was, that um, uh, people accuse him of creating the success of Hong Kong by not doing anything, uh, but he said, in fact, I did a lot, namely, he prevented the uh, the British government from imposing its own socialist policies onto Hong Kong. In other words, um, his hands were full at all times, um, um, trying to beat back the government in London from imposing socialist policies. Very important to remember that this was happening in the 1960s. In the 1960s, socialism was the flavor of the month. Everybody wanted to be socialist. Britain had a socialist government, and they were trying to impose socialism on Hong Kong. So, so Sir John was there uh, really as a barrier to that. He was, he was there to, to make sure that socialism didn't take a foothold in Hong Kong, and indeed it didn't until the Chinese invasion from two months ago.
2: Oh, that's awesome. Wow. I've never got to talk to anybody who's actually met Sir John. So thank you for that, Mary. And this I'm is I'm very
3: just, lucky. It's just yeah, been a lucky. treat
2: to have you on. Uh, good luck with the book when it comes out. We'll probably be the first two to read it. And uh, really, thank you for coming on The Soul of Enterprise. Ed, what do we have
3: next week? I appreciate all those kind words. Thank you very no. much. All right. Next week, Ron, we're going
1: to talk about strategic positioning.
2: I'll see you in 167 hours.
1: This has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by Sage transforming the way people think and work. So their organizations can thrive. Join us next week on Friday at 4 PM Eastern. That's 1 PM Pacific. In the meantime, please feel free to visit us on the website, www.thesoulofenterprise.com.